0: I recently uh, heard that song, and as I've been studying through the book of Esther in preparation for our times on Sunday morning, uh, I thought, man, that's like a, that could be a theme song for the book of Esther. A lot of the s- principles and truths that we're learning from this story in the Old Testament are captured in that song. And so I asked Chris, hey, would you teach us that song, and let's sing that uh, for the duration of our... Study in Esther. uh, That term, the ancient of days, uh, is used just three times in the Scriptures, all in one book, and it's found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven, which uh, is in the same uh, generation, if you will, uh, of the the book of Esther. It was uh, part of the uh, the exile, the time the nation of Israel was in exile. Right? Daniel wrote the book of uh, Daniel, of course, and uh, the book of Esther was uh, in that same time period, and so in one of Daniel's visions, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, he says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the ancients of, Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire, and so, of course, that expression, ancient of days, talks about God's eternal reign. It's really a a way to say that God has always been and he always will be, Uh, his eternality. And then it talks again in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And of course, this is talking about God's son, Jesus Christ. And then it climaxes in verse 22, It talks about how the the Antichrist will uh, wreak havoc on the earth and particularly with uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So that ancient of days is not just, uh, we shouldn't just think of, oh, that's like an old guy from the past who's been there, who's always been there. Uh, It's also a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. And if we believe in the Trinity, right, that the second member of the Trinity is just as equal to the first member of the Trinity, right, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Christ is the Ancient of Days coming uh, in the future. And so uh, what a great um, picture of who God is. And I know that that, um, picture of God, that knowledge of God, His eternal reign, was very, very helpful for the people of Israel during their time of exile in Babylon, and then also uh, in Persia, and that's where we pick up the story. Uh, we're looking at the Book of Esther, and we're in Chapter Four today, and we know that the the, the people of God are uh, in exile uh, in the land of Persia. Some of them have returned. Uh, were given permission by the Persian government to return and rebuild uh, the, the temple, but others stayed. And uh, the book of Esther focuses on what happened uh, to those who stayed behind in Persia. And so if you are just joining us for the first time uh, this morning, uh, we are jumping into uh, the middle of the story, but I would encourage you to go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3, or maybe listen to those sermons. Uh, that we've uh, uh, already preached, but let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. that came back and related Mordecai's words to Esser, Esther, then Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the gold scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Father, we're so grateful uh, to have a copy of your word in front of us to read and to study and to go to school on, as it were. Lord, there's so many wonderful principles that we can apply to our lives in this story of Esther. And so I pray that you would grant us understanding into what we've just read and that, Lord, how it relates to our situation today and that we would leave here better equipped for the crises that uh, you ordained for our lives, Lord, that we would respond in like manner, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, someone has appropriately dubbed the book of Esther as a crisis manual for God's people. And a crisis can be defined as a difficult or dangerous situation, often involving a sudden or unforeseen event That threatens an individual, an organization, a community, and uh, even an entire society, and triggers restlessness, fear, and even panic, and requires immediate actions and tough decisions, the outcome of which, most of the time, are unpredictable. We talk about a family crisis, or an organizational crisis, or an economic crisis, or a financial crisis, or a midlife crisis. All of us face crises, if you will. Crises, how do you say that, plural? What's the plural of crises, right? We all experience crises at various times throughout our lives. And and some fit into the category of minor crises, which are not life-threatening or life-altering, like when your kid bumps the glass of milk and it spills all over the table and down onto the floor. And some of us, as dads at least, Respond like it 's a major crisis when it really is just a minor crisis, but maybe a a, a flat tire a, a bounced check or a a scheduling conflict where you have to figure out how to be in two places at one time, or maybe your water heater goes out, or you're stuck in traffic on the way to an important appointment, or you lose your wallet, which seems to be happening more often in my life. I think I'm getting old or something. Um, getting a sore throat, or maybe a stain on your new outfit, or maybe your pipes burst and flood your house. I mean, Again, these are all examples of non-life-threatening, non-life-altering crisis. But other times we face what would qualify as a major crisis because it is life-threatening and potentially life-altering, like a car wreck, or cancer, or bankruptcy, or divorce, a prodigal child, the death of a spouse, or a parent. The question I want to ask all of us this morning is how do we respond typically when we are thrust into a crisis situation do you do you respond do you respond better to a minor crisis than you do a major crisis i think ironically many of us respond heroically to major crises that occur periodically in our life but it's in the daily minor crises that 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 we blow it i mean it's the difference between getting diagnosed with a brain tumor versus getting stuck in traffic. And it's our sinful response to the common everyday problems and frustrations of life that expose us as the practical atheists that we really are. You say, what is a practical atheist? Well, somebody who believes in God but acts like he doesn't exist. Does that apply to anyone here? Right? You, you believe that there's a God, but... When push comes to shove, you act like he doesn't exist. Your response, if somebody watched you, saw you respond to some crisis, they wouldn't begin to consider the fact that there is a God because it doesn't look like there's one based on how you're responding. And so I think all of us here would acknowledge the existence of God and assert that he controls and sustains and rules over everything. But then we deny it by the way we respond when things don't go our way or we're inconvenienced by someone or something. And when faced with a, a crisis, whether it's a, a major one or a minor one, do you get angry? Do you get impatient? Do you get, become belligerent? Do you become hysterical? Do you freak out or stress out? Um, do you find yourself immobilized by fear? Do you immediately jump into action mode and try to fix it yourself? Or maybe you just try to escape by taking a nap or eating something or popping some pills, right? These are all ways that we respond sometimes in crisis. Or do you stop and pray and remind yourself that God's invisible hand is always behind every situation, behind every conversation And he causes all of them to work out for his glory and your good. One of the resources I encourage you to consider getting that would serve as a supplement to our study on Sunday mornings is the book by Puritan John Flavel uh, called The Mystery of Providence, classic little Puritan paperback Uh, We have some available in the Resource Center if you haven't got a copy yet, but let me just read for you what it says here in the introduction. It says, quote, it is the duty of believers to observe the performances of God's providence for them, especially when they're in difficulties. So what, what are we talking about? We're talking about seeing the providence of God in everything, that it is our duty as believers to do that. Especially when we're in difficult times. It is not our custom, nor it is regarded as a mark of spiritual keenness to seek to discover and meditate upon the work of providence and all that happens to us. In other words, that's not typically what we do. And it's not considered necessarily a a mark of spiritual maturity to discover and meditate on the work of providence and everything that happens to you. Even those who profess to accept without question the truth of divine sovereignty are not infrequently guilty of practical unbelief. Glibly to assert that all things work together for good to them that love God is relatively easy, but to believe this when our circumstances are distasteful and appear likely to deteriorate is evidence of a spiritual apprehension of the sovereignty of God. Flavel's classic, on God's providence is based on David's words in Psalm 57, verse 2, which says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. The context of that prayer was David was hiding out in a cave from a crazy man who was hunting him down and trying to kill him. Obviously, we're talking about Saul, and so as he was hiding in that cave, he Said this: "I will cry out to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me." David had experienced many crises in his life, and God's providence had never failed him. And this expression, according to Flavel, is it imports the universal entrance, interest and influence of providence in and upon all the concerns and interests of the saints. When it says to God who accomplishes all things for me, that this applies to all of us who are God's children, that God's providence applies to all the concerns and everything that interests the saints, it, it has its eye upon everything that relates to them throughout their lives from first to last, not only the great and more important, but the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by God's providence, it touches all things that touch us. And then he says this, how cheering, supporting, and encouraging must be the consideration of these things be in a day of distress and trouble. What life and hope it will inspire our hearts and prayers with when, when great pressures lie upon us. And that's where we find uh, the people of Israel here in Esther chapter 4. They were facing a major life-threatening, life-altering trial or crisis that threatened their very existence as a nation. And not since they had been enslaved in in Egypt and Pharaoh had attempted to exterminate all the babies, right, that were being born because they were populating themselves so quickly, uh, this was uh, a very dangerous and dire situation. And it was not unlike their past King David, the situation he was in when he was hiding in a cave to avoid being killed by Saul. And like David, in their time of trouble, the Jews cried out to the Most High God in prayer with the hope that he would deliver them from their present crisis. And their response should inspire us to respond in the same way. Whenever we face a crisis in our lives, whether it's a big one Or a small one. As we have read this chapter, I don't think it's difficult for us to appreciate the great pressure that Esther and Mordecai and the Jews must have felt. Haman, who was Ahasuerus' newly appointed prime minister, had misled the king to authorize the annihilation of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so an irrevocable imperial decree had been sent throughout the kingdom announcing the date that had been set for the Jews to be killed and plundered. In other words, it was going to be open season on the Jews. And unlike David, there was literally no, place, no safe place for the Jews to run and hide. There was no cave for them to go to since the Persian Empire extended from India to Ethiopia and even included the Holy Land. And so not only were they scared, but they were confused. Remember last week we ended on this phrase in verse 15 of chapter 3, the city of Susa was in confusion. And we said this was because of the reversal of Persian foreign policy toward the Jews. This was a total shock, not just to the Jews, this was a shock even to the Persians, Because up until this point, the Persians had been very supportive of the Jews, and and, and the previous kings had given these decrees to let them go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple, and they actually ordered that Persians pay for it and and help the Jews to rebuild their temple. And sadly, Ahasuerus allowed himself to be manipulated by his right-hand man, Haman, who was a descendant of the Agagites and he had turned his personal vendetta against Mordecai into an opportunity to settle an old score with the Jews. And so now we're here in chapter four and really chapter four focuses on the the conversation between Mordecai and Esther. There's an exchange here, actually seven exchanges back and forth uh, that I want us to look at together um, this morning and draw some principles from each one of these um, exchanges. So first of all, let's look at Mordecai's indiscretion. Mordecai's indiscretion in verse one through three. When Mordecai learned all, all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, this was a very common picture of of mourning. Uh, whenever, when anybody ever put on sackcloth, which was just basically getting some old burlap and and taking off their nice clothes and putting on wearing burlap bags and then wiping ash all over themselves from the fire, right? This was an expression of deep regret, deep mourning, and this is what they do when they would uh, be grieving over a situation, and you see it all throughout uh, the the Old Testament. And so here was. Mordecai having put on mourner's garb very much like Job had back in the day and he was lamenting throughout the city until he came to the king's gate beyond which no one could go wearing sackcloth. No one was allowed into the king's presence when they were mourning. The king purposely insulated himself from suffering and life's unpleasantries. One commentator said it this way, Uh, Oriental kings lived in an artificial paradise that sheltered them from the realities of life. So they didn't want to see that. And if you remember from chapter 2, verse 19, it says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So Mordecai was was a well-known figure. He was one who served at the city gate, which was the commercial and legal hub of the city. It was like a a combination marketplace courthouse. And he knew that he was the main focus of Haman's hateful decree against the Jews. And that by refusing to bow to Haman like everyone else would do, he had unwittingly caused the present plight of his people. And so he likely felt a sense of remorse for having caused such a a great crisis for the whole nation. And he feared that God's chosen people would be destroyed and God's program thwarted. And so he was in great distress and great mourning. But the fact that he came to the king's gate, he came as far as he could possibly go, I think no doubt was hoping to attract the attention of Esther so that he could pass along the information to her like he had done earlier in the assassination plot back in chapter 2, verse 22, when he had found out that there were a couple of guys plotting to kill Ahasuerus, this is the plot became known to Mordecai and he told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. I think he was hoping that that same scenario would take place, that he would tell Esther and then Esther would tell the king. And so this is Mordecai's indiscretion. Secondly, let's look at Esther's investigation. Sure enough, Esther's maidens and eunuchs who knew of a relationship with Mordecai got Word to Esther that her cousin was mourning at the king's gate. Look at verse four. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her and the queen writhed in great anguish and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him and he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs from the king uh, whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So she wants to investigate Why is Mordecai acting like this? She had no idea. She had not heard, apparently, about the edict. She herself was sheltered and shielded inside the the citadel, living there with the king. And she was forbidden to leave the palace, so she sent one of her servants to take some clothes to Mordecai, possibly so he wouldn't be seen in sackcloth by the king and potentially lose his life, or, or, or maybe so he could enter the palace to see her. But Mordecai refused to disguise his anguish, and so she sent um, her helpers back out to find out why he was acting in such a way. And then we see Mordecai's instruction. Verse 6. So Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gates. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So Hathak went out and Found, the whole, found out the whole story. And uh, again, this is such a good reminder. I mean, who is this Hathak guy? Sounds like Aflac, Hathak, right? Well, who is this guy? He shows up only here in the scriptures, right? This, this pagan eunuch served as God's errand boy. And Warren Wiersbe, I think, points out the obvious here, but it's so profound. So often in the work of the Lord, God uses obscure people to accomplish important tasks. As great doors can swing upon small hinges, so great events can turn upon the deeds of small and sometimes anonymous people. In other words, you never know what God is up to and who he is using and why he is doing that. And, and it really comes down to this the simplest um, most obscure person uh, can be used by God to accomplish his will. In our lives. So Mordecai responds to Hathak coming out and wanting to know what's up. So he sent a copy of the decree back with him, along with an order for Esther to use her position of influence to intervene and intercede for her people. In other words, what Mordecai was saying is now it's time for you to play that card right, that ace that you've been hiding in your boot, right, up until this point, nobody knew she was a Jew, not even her husband, and Mordecai had told her to keep that a secret. And in the providence of God, Mordecai says, said to her, Esther, it's time, it's time for you to reveal to the king who you really are. Well, obviously that led to Esther's intimidation, her intimidation. Verse 9, Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he is but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. So obviously Esther was hesitant <clears throat> At first, she responded to Mordecai with a, a faint-heartedness of, uh, by reminding him that it was a capital offense to appear before the king uninvited, unless, of course, he spared the intruder's life by extending his golden scepter to them. And so she was fearful of what might happen if she violated palace protocol and, was a, and, 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 and that was really intended to protect the king from unwanted visitors, Or maybe unnecessary interruptions that might interfere with his life or schedule. In fact, according to Josephus, who was the Jewish historian, uh, he records that the king had men stationed around his throne with axes to punish anyone who approached him without being summoned. I mean, in other words, it was an immediate response. If the king didn't want to see you, didn't want to hear you, you'd get something chopped off. And it was usually your head. And what added to her fear and trepidation was that she hadn't been summoned by the king for a month, indicating that she may have fallen out of favor with him. Wives, can you imagine, right? Your husband hasn't spoke to you for a month. You've, You've been getting the silent treatment for 30 days, and something big comes up, and you really... Feel like you got to share this with your husband, and you're going to be a little intimidated, right? The guy's not even talking to me, right? And hopefully, that would none of you can relate to that, right? That would never happen uh, for that long, at least, right? Maybe a couple hours or a few days, but never 30 days in a row. Anyway, the point is, I mean, this was an intimidating situation. Um, she didn't know where she stood with the king, and I'm sure, on top of that, was her awareness of how unpredictable and impetuous her husband tended to be. That made her fearful as well. I mean, we've already seen what a hothead he was and how prone he was to fly off the handle and, you know, he'd already banished one queen for not coming when he summoned her. She didn't want to get banished as well or killed for coming when he hadn't summoned her. And so she was in a difficult predicament. And so Mordecai responds, and we could call this Mordecai's intimation, verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty, and here's the the key verse, the key phrase in this entire book, for such a time as this. You may want to underline that, bracket that, put some uh, parentheses around that, for such a time as this. So what is Mordecai doing here? He's telling her, to not think that just because she was in the palace that somehow she was gonna escape this massacre. And essentially what he was saying is, hey, what does it matter? I mean, you're gonna die, die either way. You may die if you do act, but you will die if you don't act. And which is worse, an immediate death by order of the king, right, or waiting to die at the hands of Haman? Either way, this thing doesn't work out in our favor. But notice the faith here that I think is suggested in his statement that if she refused to act, someone else would rise up to deliver the Jews. Perhaps this is a veiled reference to God. And really, while nothing has been said up to this point suggesting that Mordecai was a man of great faith in God, it does seem that by this statement, he he at least believed that God was concerned about the welfare of his chosen people, and he was confident that God would act on their behalf based on the promises that God made to Abraham and Moses and David. I mean, you just have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. For starters, Genesis chapter 12, verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant which was reiterated in uh, chapter 17 uh, this is uh, Genesis seventeen one. Now, when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly." Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, "As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will not be the father of a multitude, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So Mordecai, being a faithful Jew knew those promises, believed in those promises, that God was going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And Haman would fit into that category of someone who was trying to curse God's people. But again, going back to that final phrase there that really is the heart of this entire book and this The point of this entire story, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Again, this is, uh, I think, revealing here that the providence of God is the underlying theme of this story. And Mordecai suggested to Esther to consider that perhaps this opportunity to save her people was the very reason she had been exalted to the throne at this time. In other words, this was no coincidence. This was no accident. This was not a fluke. This was not merely happenstance. Aren't we lucky that we have a a, a Jewish queen? That's not at all what's going on here. It's the very same thing as Joseph, that God strategically placed Joseph in a position in Egypt for such a time as this, for the time of famine, to preserve his father and his brothers and God's people and so Mordecai is appealing to his cousin Esther saying listen God has put you in a position of influence for a reason not so you can turn the other way and continue in, uh, in your safe comfortable status quo lifestyle God has a special job for you to do Hadassah And so Esther responds. Listen to her intention, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law And if I perish, I perish. So Esther made her decision. She told Mordecai to get all the Jews to fast for three days, and then she would approach the king, even though it was against the law and she could die. And I love that expression if I perish, I perish. These are heroic words expressing her courageous resolve to risk her own life for the sake of the Jews. Reminds me of other historic statements by God's people. How about um, Daniel chapter three? We find Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were commanded to bow down and worship this this uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built of himself, and everyone bowed down when the bell was rung, and there were three guys standing up, left standing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I still can picture that, that record album, I'm dating myself here, uh, Keith Green's uh, No Compromise uh, record album that I listened to when I was younger, and Uh, On that cover was a picture of all these people bowing down, and you had three guys standing up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they were arrested, and they were were threatened to be uh, be thrown into the, the fiery furnace if they didn't bow. And this is what they said in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Hey, we believe that God's going to rescue us. He's going to deliver us from this thing. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. Talk about bold and heroic statements. How about the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I don't care what happens to me. As long as the gospel is preached. Chapter 21, verse 13 Then Paul answered, this was when uh, there was a vision that he was gonna go to Jerusalem and be arrested. And everyone was like, don't go, Paul, don't go. And Paul said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be bound but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So like all the other God-appointed deliverers, In the history of Israel, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Samson, David, Esther was a type of Christ who would be the ultimate deliverer of God's people. Her willingness to lay down her life in humble submission to the will of God, I think foreshadowed Jesus' death on the cross. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was wrestling with the will of God from a human perspective, and he said, Lord, is there any other way that we can accomplish the redemption of mankind than this, me having to drink the cup of your wrath and be separated from you? And then what did Jesus finally say? Not my will, but yours be done. So again, I think we see Christ here in the example of Esther, her willingness to sacrifice her own life for the salvation of her people. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. And then lastly, Mordecai's intercession, verse 17. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded it. So even though it's not mentioned here, their fasting was most certainly accompanied by prayer as it is so often in scripture. In fact, just turn over to Ezra, just a couple books back towards the beginning of your Bible. Ezra chapter eight, love this story, where Ezra was... Heading back to the promised land, to the city of Jerusalem, to help rebuild the temple. And the king offered to send some soldiers along to protect them. Because it was a dangerous journey. And uh, notice what he said here in verse 21. He came to the people. And this is Ezra 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king's troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. And so we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaties. In other words, Ezra had put his people, the people of Israel, in a dangerous spot. That, hey, we're gonna go without any protection, human protection. And I just thought it was a bad testimony to to tell the king that after we said, hey, God is with us, he provides for us, to say, oh yeah, we need your help too. And so, hey, let's pray, let's fast and ask the Lord to protect us. And then right there, sandwiched between Ezra and, And Esther is the book of Nehemiah, and in Nehemiah chapter 1, if you remember how that starts, Nehemiah finds out that uh, the things are not all well in Israel, and that the walls are all torn down, and the people are discouraged. And so look at Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Again, in the same context, Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, we see Daniel, the great prophet, praying and fasting. This is Daniel chapter nine, verse three, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And and by the way, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus, in Matthew chapter six, verse 16, He said, Whenever you fast, by the way, not if you fast, whenever you fast, in other words, Jesus assumed that this was a a, a spiritual discipline that his followers would practice, so whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, again, there it is, when you fast, not if you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then in Matthew 17, this is the story of the disciples trying to cast out the the demon in that young man, and they tried everything, and and it didn't work. And then Jesus came, and he cast the demon out, he rebuked the demon, and the boy was cured at once, and the disciples said, hey, why couldn't we do it? And in verse 21, Jesus said, This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And again, the principle there is that there are certain situations, certain crises in our lives, that the only solution is fasting and prayer. Not just prayer, but added to that, ramping up the intensity of that prayer, you add fasting. And essentially what you're saying when you fast and you're saying, I'm not gonna eat any food today or I'm gonna miss this meal and spend that time praying in place of eating, you're, you're expressing your, your um, intensity to God, you're, how, how, that, that, that how serious this is. Lord, Lord, I'm serious about this. I need an answer <laughs> from you regarding this matter. And so it just expresses your, your, your passion and your your intensity, your desire to want to uh, know what God wants in a particular situation, or for God to resolve a certain situation. So, what is your attitude? What is your attitude when you're faced with a difficult circumstance or a distressful time in your life? Is this how you respond? Do you do you pray? And at times, do you fast? Even to just let God know how serious you are about the need and the situation you're in. I think, again, fasting and and prayer is an expression of earnestness, Uh, the, the seriousness of the situation, that you are utterly dependent on God for deliverance from this dire position you're in, some terrible crisis or maybe some wicked enemy. Oswald Sanders, who was the former director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship, uh, which used to be China Inland Mission, which Hudson Taylor had founded, this is what he said. He said, in the history of China Inland Mission, the tide in many a crisis has turned when its workers have met the situation with prayer and fasting. Many a stubborn city was opened. Many an intransigent heart has yielded. Many a financial need has been resolved by these means. In other words, he was just advocating, hey, fasting and prayer. Try it. It works. And typically in the most difficult of circumstances. And so what was the good? At least Some of the good that was coming from this crisis that we find the people of Israel in, the Jews in in Esther chapter four, well, God uses crisis to spark a spiritual revival among these Jewish exiles. And it's so often the case in our lives. We need to experience some kind of problem or some kind of pressure before we truly humble ourselves and pray. Isn't that true? I mean, when life's simple, right? I mean, life's easy, We don't have a lot of pressure. We don't feel compelled to pray. But then all of a sudden, God will bring in some doozy of a trial into our lives, and what do we do? We immediately hit our knees. We have no choice. And we begin to cry out to Him and commune with Him. And what is happening? God is using that crisis to draw us to Himself. We'd gotten comfortable, maybe we'd gotten lazy. Maybe we become negligent in our prayer lives. And God's like, you know what? I miss you. I want to have communion with you. And more importantly, guess what? You need to have communion with me. Someone asked the Scottish minister, George MacDonald, this question. If God loves us so much and knows everything that we need before we ask, then why must we pray? That's a legitimate question, right? Hey, if God is all that you're saying he is, Ken, that he's in control, he's sovereign, he knows everything, he works out everything, then why do we need to pray? It's going to all work out anyway. It doesn't really matter if I pray or not. God's going to do what he's going to do. Well, listen to Mac- McDonald's magnificent answer here. He said, quote, what if God knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all their needs, and prayer is the beginning of of that communion. So what do we see here? We see a crisis that led to communion. And I think one of the most glorious benefits of being a child of God, one who's been reconciled to God through Christ, is having direct communion with God, the sovereign ruler of the universe. And we squander that opportunity. The sovereign ruler of the universe wants to spend time with us, wants to commune with us, wants us to commune with him. And I think we again have an opportunity to compare this earthly king who arrogantly called himself considered himself the king of kings. How different is our king? Based on the forgiveness that we've received by faith in the work of Christ, God's scepter of grace and mercy is always held out to us. We don't have to go into his presence going, I wonder what he's gonna do, I wonder what he's gonna say, I wonder how he's gonna respond. Aren't you glad that we have a gracious King who has given us free access to Him anytime? And we don't have to wait to be summoned. We don't need an appointment to get in to see Him. We have an open invitation to the throne of grace to receive help whenever we find ourselves in any kind of crisis. And we have no need to worry or fear. We can come boldly and confidently before Him because that's exactly what He tells us to do in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God encourages us to bring our burdens and our sorrows and our dilemmas to him. Are you going through a difficult time? Are you facing a, a crisis right now in your life? Go to God before you go to anyone else. We typically do that, right? We run to other people to help us out. Go to God first. Doesn't mean you can't lean upon God's people. But make sure you appeal to God first. First. He is the one who is continually and providentially working behind the scenes to deliver his people. And I think the courage to stand firm in a, in a crisis situation comes from the knowledge that God is in control and he's able to work it all out for his glory and our good. So crisis leads to communion and communion leads to courage. I think communion with Christ is the key to having the courage that we need in the midst of our crisis, whatever that is. Years ago, somebody gave us a a little painting piece of artwork for our home, and it's it's there on the wall uh, in our living room, and this is what it says. He who kneels before God can stand before anyone. He who kneels before God can stand before before anyone I think that's the takeaway from Esther chapter 4 let's pray Father thank you thank you so much for being such a gracious God who invites us to come confidently before your throne to find mercy and grace to help in our times of need forgive us for not taking you up on that You long for us to commune with you. And Lord, we desperately need to commune with you to survive in life, and yet we go so many days through so many situations without even acknowledging you. I pray that this would be a great reminder for us of how important it is that we spend time with you in prayer and even add fasting to that at times, just to ramp up the intensity of our prayer life, the seriousness of the situation. Lord, in showing our our trust, our hope, our confidence in you and your ability to accomplish all things for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.